Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. Why did Richard Nixon install a taping system in the White House? Our guest today will answer these and other questions about the origins of the infamous presidential recording system. His name is Luke Nichter. He's a professor of history at Texas A&M University, and he's the nation's foremost expert on the Nixon tapes and is founder of NixonTapes.org, the only website dedicated solely to the scholarly production and dissemination of digitized Nixon tape audio and transcripts. He's also the co-editor of two volumes of the Nixon tapes with fellow historian Douglas Brinkley. Uh, Luke, welcome back. Thanks, Jonathan. It's nice to be back. Just to kind of start off, can you tell us a little bit about the history of presidential recording? Uh, Richard Nixon wasn't the first to tape. Um, who was? Yeah, this is a fascinating topic. You know, when the Nixon tapes were first publicly disclosed in 1973 during uh, during a Watergate inquiry, as far as we knew, he was the first president to record himself. And then only uh, through digging in various archives, the National Archives and Presidential Libraries, we realized Nixon wasn't uh, the, the new, I mean, the first president at all at taping. Taping actually started in 1940, uh, all the way back in 1940, when technology was much more uh, inferior than it was in the early 70s. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as president, uh, brought uh, press into uh, his office and recorded a number of those basically press conferences uh, for the purpose of when he was quoted the next day in the newspapers, he wanted to see whether he was quoted accurately. So he used the he used the tapes both to record history, but also uh, as a check on those uh, with whom he met and spoke. And presidents after Roosevelt um, each recorded more and more hours. So after FDR's death, uh, Truman inherited his taping system. And then by the 50s, presidents were using Dictabelt recordings, which could uh, expand the capacity of recordings to 15 minutes at a time, which seems so uh, so meager to us today. But that was the latest technology. And so each president recorded according to the latest technology. And by the 60s, Kennedy and Johnson were recording in the hundreds of hours. But it was really Nixon that moved recording forward. Um, and he did so because technology had advanced by the early 70s where he could make it sound activated. So anytime uh, Nixon was in with was within physical range of one of the locations that was part of his taping system, and there were various from around the White House, the West Wing, the mansion, Camp David, and various telephones, the system started automatically. So ultimately, Nixon recorded uh, in the thousands of hours instead of hundreds, and he recorded more than all other presidents before him combined. And why does that voice activation, the fact that Nixon was voice activated, why does that make his... Um or how does it make his uh, his taping unique? Well, I think it makes his recordings unique for a number of reasons. As a historian, I think they just make it more honest. Uh, prior to Nixon, for every conversation or meeting a president had, uh, a decision had to be made to turn on the, on the system or to keep it turned off. And I don't think it takes a complete cynic to come to the conclusion that for most presidents prior to Nixon, they turned it on when it served the president's interest, and they surely left it off when it serves the president's interest. And so prior to Nixon, I think you get the sense as a listener, as a consumer of history from that time period, that your history is a little more choreographed. Uh, now, even in the Nixon age, you know, not everything was recorded. So Air Force One wasn't recorded. His homes in San Clemente and uh, in Key Biscayne uh, were not recorded. So not every location where the president spent time was recorded, but many were. 
so I think for me, a, a more sufficient sample size, which is certainly you know in the thousands of hours than any other president, and the fact that it captured everything when he was in one of those places, to me, it gives a much more accurate, honest representation of history and, and how the president thought, how he worked, and how his White House ultimately ran. How does it fit into, um, if you're, you're a researcher, you're a historian, um, when, you, when you go into the Nixon archives and you go through the presidential yellow pads or you go through um, the, the, the um, decision memorandums, how, does the, how do the Nixon tapes uh, fit in uh, with, the whole, uh, with that whole record of, uh, of paper history? That's a great question. Um, you know, when I started my work on the tapes, I was a grad student at Bowling Green State University, and I was fascinated by the tapes. I couldn't get enough. I, I couldn't believe that I was listening to private recordings in the Oval Office, and it made you feel like a fly on the wall in, in, the, in the president's private space. You were hearing something forbidden, something you shouldn't hear, and, and certainly when these were recorded, the law regarding records uh, being released to the public was such that we never should have heard these. Uh, they should still be secret. These were the president's personal property. And so I did the thing that I would advise my own students was absolutely foolish, is I started with the tapes, and I just got lost in fascination with the tapes. I think where the tapes um, serve a purpose that um, extends from the textual or the paper records, uh, which are the traditional records you look at, the memoranda in an archive, or the president's correspondence, or in this case, you said the yellow pads. Um, I think what the tapes show is really the linkage between those pieces of paper. Because when you go into an archive, you either things are siloed. You request domestic policy records, you request foreign policy records, and even say within foreign policy, you want National Security Council records? Do you want um, meeting memoranda minutes? Do you want China? Do you want Soviet Union? Do you want Vietnam? Do you want it by 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 specific staff assistant? Do you want it Kissinger files? Do you want later Scowcroft files? Do you want? I mean, everything's siloed. It's compartmentalized. Everything's in a box. Everything's in a folder. The tapes show how those folders and boxes are connected. You know, the tapes are much more like a conversation you'd have with a friend or a parent, where you discuss uh, the news of the day, you discuss the problems, you see how they're, they're interrelated in the president's mind, you weave in what's going on the Hill, you weave in some, you know, where, what are we doing for dinner tonight, what are we doing this weekend, when are we leaving for Florida on Friday, you weave in family. Presidents are also fathers, they're spouses, uh, they have family concerns just like we do, and so I think when you have a tape, and nothing's siloed, you see the issues from the president's perspective, the way that he thought about them and the way that decisions were made, all options considered, not considered, and how the president reflected after the fact. And it's pretty rare that you find any of that kind of linkage in the traditional textual records. You had mentioned that, that the tapes were the president's personal, um, personal property. Um, just for the sake of history and knowing, um, knowing their origins um, to the public, um, how ultimately did the tapes become accessible to researchers? Well, in, in President Nixon's case, uh, what happened ultimately was uh, during July of 73, uh, before the Irvin Committee, the, the Watergate Committee in the Senate, uh, the staff assistant who operated the taping system day-to-day, -day, Alexander Butterfield, 
testified um, that the tapes existed. That was something that we, you know, again, now it's commonplace to think, well, president since 1940 taped. Well, don't think about it in 2018 terms. Think about it in 1973 terms, which is that presidents have never taped before. This is a, a brand new thing. And when he disclosed the fact that tapes existed, you have to remember in 1973, the Watergate Committee, its central goal, I think, was best stated by Senator Howard Baker of Tennessee, which was their goal was to figure out what the president knew and when did he know it. And up until the point of the taping system being disclosed, it was he said, it was she said, it was conflicting testimony, it was different ways to read into a, uh, between the lines of a, a memoranda or a textual record, and the tapes were, pro, you know, not, not exactly uh, showing what the president knew and when, it, when he knew it, but they at least could show you what the president said and when he said it. So in terms of a, a higher standard of evidence, I don't think you can use the tapes in isolation. You need the context of the textual records, but you also can't look at a subject during a period that was taped and ignore the tapes. The tapes are a new kind of evidence, a powerful kind of evidence that helps you to confirm or to correct what you see, you know, in other records. Let's uh, let's take a listen to some of the tapes. Um, President Nixon began recording on February 16th, 1971. Um, these tapes are authentic, but many of them, um, to the untrained ear, um, are very, very inaudible. Um, we're going to post a transcript uh, of this tape online, but just for the just for some uh, flavor for our listeners, um, I am going to play it right now. As you can hear, that tape is very, very inaudible. Um, that's President Nixon with his White House aide, um, Alexander Butterfield. And Alexander Alex Butterfield is explaining how the taping system works. Um, Luke, who is Alex Butterfield? You mentioned a little bit about, about his testimony revealing the tapes earlier, but um, who who is he? Well, first, I've got to say, I remember when I transcribed that tape, and it sort of gives me nightmares to hear how terrible that audio is. You know, the, the, I think all the tapes, um, you know, the quality is pretty poor. You know, um, the technology was cutting edge for the early 70s, but it's pretty primitive today. It was a pretty advanced system, sound activated, you know, Sony players. But the problem was they tended to go to the local drugstore uh, and buy tapes, kind of the thinnest quality tape you could get, which kind of defeated the purpose of having this really great system. Um, so uh, thankfully, they're not all that bad. But I, I think to answer your question, I would say um, 
um, it, it, it just takes patience to listen to these. And, and thankfully, the, the only way I could do this, the only way I could make sense out of a tape that's that terrible is we have technological advances that you didn't have then. And now with terabyte hard drives and with software, we can slow down or speed up a tape. We can separate out the noise. We can boost levels. We can lower levels. Is the only way I could do this work. And here, you know, when you hear Alexander Butterfield's um, uh, voice in this conversation, you know, he was basically the president's uh, appointment secretary. He, he was not. He was a former uh, military official. He was not uh, someone uh, who uh, you would say was in the inner circle, uh, the Nixon inner circle. He was not someone you would say who was a substantive policymaker in the sense of Kissinger over foreign policy or Ehrlichman over domestic policy. He was basically the guy who made the trains run on time. And uh, this is about the most you ever hear him speak on the tapes, because typically what he's saying is he's coming in the Oval Office when a meeting's over, because he knows the president's schedule, and he's saying something to the president like, Mr. President, uh, it's 10 a.m., and your 10 a.m. appointment's here. You know, his job's to, to move people and paper in and out of the Oval Office. And so that's his basic job, and, and he was one of the very only, the only, very few people uh, who knew about the taping system. The vast majority of those who you hear on this, to these tapes did not know they were being recorded. The only people who knew were the Secret Service who installed the system, uh, Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman, and a few people below him, probably Larry Higby, probably Dwight Chapin, uh, uh, Butterfield, and then ultimately Steve Bull, who replaced Butterfield in 73. But this was an extremely small circle of people who knew the tapes, uh, and that's the role that Butterfield typically plays in a tape. In this tape, Nixon says the purpose of this is just to have the whole thing on file for for, for professional reasons. Uh, what does he mean by that? Yeah, that's it, a great question. I've thought about that statement a lot of times. Um, you know, there's no great statement from the president, either in the tapes themselves, and he only talks about the taping system itself a few times. I mean, my belief is that he really turns this thing on, he forgets about it, and you know, operates normally. After all, there's no reason you want to indicate to the person you're meeting with or, or talking to that you might be being recorded or being or saying things intentionally for a record, you know, let alone so speaking into a microphone, a uh, hidden microphone. So, you know, he doesn't give us a, a clear indication in, in the tapes themselves or in his memoir why exactly he taped. Um, but I think it's 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 a combination of things. I think for professional reasons mean here you've got someone who loved history who was a great reader and, and consumer of history, and he knew that presidents, almost everything they do, makes history. And so I think part of it is to keep it for a historical record uh, that he could maybe use, that he could refer to, that maybe in retirement he could retire to San Clemente, the Western White House, and he could write a multi-volume, you know, Churchillian uh, memoir accurately quoting exactly what he said or said to him, as Churchill did with his multi-volume memoir of his actions during World War II. Uh, for, for professional reasons, to me, also means he just wants a record of what, what other people say, that then if they go out and say something different, he says, you know, no, 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 you know, this is exactly what you said. Um, I think he wanted it for a variety of reasons. But I think most of all, he just wanted a record of what occurred during his presidency. And this was a presidency that was based extensively on private diplomacy. 
Nixon was somebody who met with very powerful leaders, uh, Soviet, Chinese, Vietnamese, and did a lot of personal diplomacy. He didn't delegate it to others. He was the one who had the, had tough conversations with Soviet Ambassador Debrin and her Foreign Minister Gromyko, or the Vietnamese, or later later the Chinese. And for the president, you know, the tapes improved his workflow in the Oval Office. If the process before taping had been the um, you know my note taker sits in the office and tries to make an accurate record of things that are said and promises that are made, and then a transcript is produced and goes in the president's file, this is a whole lot better. First of all, it's more accurate, as long as you can listen to hear the audio clearly. But then this allows the president, someone who conducts this very personal type of diplomacy, to say to a foreign leader, ally or, or, or rival, you know, why don't you just come into the Oval Office and we'll have a, an intimate conversation, no staff present, no notes. Let's just talk like friends. Uh, and so that gave Nixon the chance to have a very accurate uh, reading, a readout of those meetings. And in some cases, we have tapes of, of, of meetings with Brezhnev and Chinese where because there was no note taken, no memcon, no record of the conversation, some of these tapes are the only record of the conversation. And these are, so in some cases, tapes simply confirm what's in other records, but some of these tapes are the only record, and those are really important. If that's the case, though, why did, why did Nixon wait two years to install this taping system? Why didn't he do it during, you know, during the transition when President Johnson told him it was, it was a great idea? That's a, it's another great question. I have no idea. Um, as far as I understand, uh, after Nixon was elected in 68, he, as, as President-elects do, uh, made a visit to the White House. And as has been written, I think, by, by both President Nixon and President Johnson, he got a thorough tour of the president's, uh, President Johnson's operations, including his taping system. Uh, President Nixon probably would have been surprised by that. Uh, this was a generation of leaders who taped. They taped their phone calls. They taped their correspondence. Uh, after hours, they would call a phone number and they would dictate their correspondence. Uh, that was it was a recorded call, kind of like a long answering machine or voicemail. And oftentimes, correspondence secretaries would come into the office in the morning before anyone else listened to it, type up the correspondence, and then when you come into the office, it's all ready for your signature or for your review or to edit and so forth. So, I mean, taping was a a way of life for President Nixon and those of his generation. Um, the only thing I can think of is he just wasn't satisfied with the options, that he didn't want to inherit Johnson's system, he didn't like the options presented to him by the Secret Service, and by 71, the technology had improved where it could be sound activated, and I think 71 is also a critical year, because whether it's purely coincidental or whether he, he thought in these terms, uh, the time of taping was particularly historic, because we were beginning ping-pong diplomacy with the Chinese. I mean, a number of his most significant initiatives began in 71 and ultimately reached a climax in 72. Uh, however, I, would, I sometimes joke that because he waited two years to tape, uh, we also didn't get recordings of probably some of what, what would have been some of the most entertaining conversations in the Oval Office, you know, such as when he met Elvis Presley. Uh, we, of course, don't have a recording of that. Uh, so he waited two years to get everything, uh, but thankfully he got what he did, because for the period that was taped, 
I would argue that there's no richer record uh, of of any other time of his presidency or any other presidency. You had mentioned some of the locations, some of the spaces um, that were equipped with the the recording equipment. Um, is there any particular location um, or locations that have uh, more value than others in terms of conversation? Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, a president uses different space, spaces differently. I mean, I think probably this is true of any president. They have spaces where more formal meetings take place. They have have, uh, places where more casual meetings take place. A president probably has a place that he likes to hang around with his pals and just talk shop. Um, And so presidents use spaces differently. Um, You know, presidents of his, leaders of his generation, um, at least in terms of the tapes, don't do a lot of substance on the phone. You know, there's sometimes a concern, you'll, you'll hear it on the tapes, another the recorded telephone conversations, you know, a, a long telephone conversation for President Nixon is really over two minutes. And, you know, he'll say things like, well, we really shouldn't talk about this on the phone. You know, this was a time when, when most of their phone calls were not placed directly. They were placed through an operator, through a switchboard. And a lot of times you get the idea that people of that generation kind of wonder if someone else could be listening in. And so the real business tended to take, take place face-to-face. And so, you know, President Nixon's also interesting because the taping system started small and it grew. I mean, when it started, we're talking primarily about uh, the Oval Office, uh, the Executive Office Building, and one telephone, and ultimately it grows to you know the Oval Office. Uh, two different phones in the Oval Office are recorded separately. You have his smaller office uh, across to West Executive Avenue in EOB 180, where he has smaller meetings as well as one of the phones in that office. Then he expanded it to you know in the evenings he liked to he liked to make phone calls to friends to follow up on things earlier in the day he just didn't have time for, or things he'd like to get moving for tomorrow's work day. Um, he would also make calls late in the evening to the West Coast when it was three hours earlier, uh, where people were still working. And so he would he would retire to the Lincoln sitting room. I think he liked the history of the Lincoln sitting room. It was Lincoln's bedroom originally when uh, President Lincoln occupied the, the, the White House. And so he, that, that, just that phone was recorded in there. Uh, and then he ultimately added on, uh, even in later in 72, uh, Camp David, two different locations in Camp David, both his cabin in the room where meetings took place, but also on the phone. So even that's curious, and we don't have the answers for that, that over time, more taping locations were, were added. So obviously, he, he liked it. He liked the fact that it was capturing content. I know of no evidence that he ever reviewed a tape. Uh, there's no evidence he ever listened to a tape until uh, 1973 when he when he realized his tapes were going to be used against him as evidence during Watergate. Um, so it's it's curious why it started when it did. It's curious why it started in the locations that it did, and it's curious that more locations were added on over time. So by the by the end of the system, we're recording far more hours of his time per week than we were per week at the very beginning of the system in '71. Let's listen to another tape, this one a little bit more audible. Um, this is a conversation between President Nixon and his chief of staff, uh, Bob Haldeman.
In this conversation, um, President Nixon and Bob Haldeman are talking about a um, official at the Department of Interior, Fred Russell, and um, how they um, how they're going to deal with um, his firing um, and, and sort of the media implications of that. How would the taping system have been useful uh, in this case, Luke? Yeah, I, I think this is interesting because you know here you have a conversation. Uh, and the, the tapes are full of conversations about personnel issues. Uh, people in a government are always moving in, they're moving out, they're moving up, uh, they're moving to different positions. And so I think what starts as a conversation about an undersecretary of the interior, Fred Russell, ends up being a fascinating conversation about what are we going to do with these tapes? Uh, are we going to use them as we go along? Are we going to keep track of what's being recorded? And so to me, the conversation is kind of overtaken by this bigger issue. Um, and ultimately, what happens, what's being proposed is, is should the president or should uh, Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman have someone uh, listen as they go along? Should we have transcripts made as we go along? You know, what should we be doing with these tapes? Should we just be putting them in the file and forgetting them? Uh, or could they be used to our advantage somehow as we go along? And ultimately, as far as I know, um, they never use the tapes. Um, certainly, there's, there's no discussion on the tapes themselves. If they use the tapes, uh, there's not a discussion about using the tapes on the tapes. The, the first time that I'm aware that they ever use the tapes at all is in June of 73, uh, when specific tapes, there's talk of them being subpoenaed as evidence during Watergate, and, you know, these t- tape numbers and dates and times and conversations are mentioned. And Nixon just wants to figure out what are those dates and what are those times and what are those those meetings that are going to be subpoenaed. So he had some idea. But I think ultimately in this case, I think they made the right choice for history because I don't think you can really accuse President Nixon or Haldeman of choreographing conversations. I think when you're turning the taping system on or off affirmatively for every conversation, I think the reasons for recording are, are a little more suspect. But in this case, this was an important fork in the road. You know, are we going to manipulate and use these tapes? Or are we just going to put them in the file and let the Secret Service change the reels every day and put fresh tapes on? And as far as I can tell, um, they did the latter. They just filed these away, and they really never made use of them or referenced them uh, until deep into Watergate. Why do you think the president didn't want these uh 
tapes transcribed? Well, he doesn't say in the recording. I mean, my, my hunch is because to have them transcribed would also expand the circle of people who knew about their existence. I mean, this is in the, also the early 70s, the day when uh, the early Xerox machines are all available. And, you know, you have a transcript. Uh, if you have not a tape that only the Secret Service knows about, and then now you have a transcript that could be floating around, that could be copied, I think a variety of reasons. Uh, you, you, A, expand the knowledge of the system exists. B, um, and certainly you see what happens during Watergate once the press or, or others figure out the tapes exist um, and how they can be used against Nixon. And then I think, you know, third, these were his records. Uh, this was his personal file. And I think he wanted to make the final decisions about how these were used. And if you let others be a part of, of, of using them somehow, you've, you've lost control of the central purpose of installing it in the first place. In another tape, um, in, another, in another early tape, um, uh, uh, Paldeman and Nixon suggest that maybe Alexander Butterfield take notes of the tapes but not transcribe them. Um, did this ever happen? Is there any record of that? Uh, not, not that I know of. I mean, I, I mean, it's possible that Butterfield might have listened to tapes on his own time. But, you know, if, if an assignment of that importance had been undertaken, um, and here it's on a subject where very few people know about it, um, including the president, and I suspect we would know about that. I mean, I suspect there would be further tapes uh, where, Hald where Nixon says to Haldeman, you can review these days or these meetings, and you'd ultimately, as Haldeman does on many other subjects, reports back. Here's what he found. Here's what we did. Here's how we used it. Here's how we got it out. And I just don't find that content. So if, if any tapes were reviewed, it was to such a limited degree that it wasn't something that was ever done routinely or done uh, where, by and large, the tapes were used for any other purpose other than just creating a historic record and, and, and filing them away. Our guest today was Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. Our topic was the origin of the Nixon White House taping system. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Mavroides signing off.